Ash Wednesday is this week, meaning that Lent begins soon, and that means it's time to give something up. But why give something up? Welcome to the Monday Muse. I'm Lee Benson. Before we begin, remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, tell all your friends, do all the things, tell all your family members, help me to appease the fickle and pernicious algorithm gods. Also, I would like to hear your thoughts about today's topic, so please let me know what you think in the comments. I do actually read those comments and I try to respond to them and engage with them, so let me know what you think. Today we are talking about Ash Wednesday, and Ash Wednesday is on Wednesday of this week. That's the 14th of February, 2024, which is also Valentine's Day. When I was thinking about this episode and preparing, I realized that Ash Wednesday, falling on the same day as Valentine's Day, has a deeply symbolic meaning to it. In Freudian psychoanalytic theory, Thanatos and Eros are two fundamental drives or instincts that play a significant role in shaping human behavior and he models this after. On one hand, we have Eros, named after the Greek god of love, that represents the life instinct or the drive for survival and pleasure. It is everything that is creative or the life-sustaining forces. And Eros is often associated with the process of love and attraction, creativity, and the desire for unity and preservation of life. On the other hand, we have Thanatos. Thanatos is named after the Greek personification of death and represents the death instinct or the drive towards aggression and destruction and ultimately death. It encompasses all the destructive tendencies and desires to, of humanity to return to an inorganic state. And this perfectly corresponds with Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day. So we have Ash Wednesday, which is symbolic or has the themes of death, Thanatos, and Valentine's Day, which has to do with Eros. So we have the two fundamental instincts, of court, according to Freud, on the same day. We have eros, life, love, and then we have thanatos, death, and the, the drive towards destruction. But that's not what I want to talk about today. What I would like to talk about today are some of the themes and the readings from Ash Wednesday. Although I'm not going to get too deep into the readings, I do want to mention or talk about some of the themes in the first reading from the prophet Joel. So as one might expect from Ash Wednesday... One of the big symbols or signs of the day are ashes. And we, we get a little bit of this from Genesis 3.19, where God speaks to Adam and says that you are dust and to dust you shall return. You are ash and to ash you, you shall return. And that is a phrase that is repeated when the priest or the minister or the deacon puts ashes on the, or sprinkles ashes on the top of the person's head or makes a, a cross on their forehead and says to them, remember that you were dust and to dust you shall return. So these words are spoken first to Adam after the fall and then now today to, or on Wednesday to all Christians, that it reminds us of our fundamental nothingness and the reality of death. It's also kind of interesting that God declares that Adam is ash and he will, or dust and he will return to dust, at the same time saying that the snake or serpent will eat dust for the rest of his life. Or, But anyway, I'm not going to get too much into that symbolism either. Maybe another time if you're interested. 
we can switch over to the symbolism or the archetypal significance of death as one of the main themes of the day. Death can be interpreted symbolically as an instrument of change. That whenever something goes from one state to another, we see it as a death or we interpret it as a death. So we think about the fact that we're, we're creatures of habit at, and at almost every level of life, we resist change and, and parting to us could be such sweet sorrow because we become attached to everything. We become attached to people, places, and things. And we don't want to lose anything that we perceive as belonging to us. So anything that we lose in any category of life, we see it as a change and therefore as a death. There are worn out parts of us physically and spiritually that have to die. And that parting for us in, in any level of our being is a figurative death. You can think a little bit about Jordan Peterson's Burn the Deadwood. There, there are elements to us that have to be burned away or things that have to be changed. And that is experienced by us on kind of an existential level as death. So between the kind of pruning away of the old and the, the bringing about of the new, there lies this period of, of death that's in between. So ash, you know, from Ash Wednesday is often uh, from the ashes or from burning the palms from Palm Sunday. And so it's the, the death of, of the palms that we get the ash and that that is supposed to be the symbol of our own kind of burning away and our own death. Other than ash, there's a common symbol for mortification or for penance, which is this season, the season of Lent is a season of mortification and penance, is the symbol of the skull. And, and the skull kind of represents, you know, the bare bones, if I, if I can say that, the bare bones of reality, and that the, the garments of the body, you know, the garments of flesh have been sort of stripped away, and what's left over is bones. The instrument of change, in fact, which is death, reveals the part of us that's most enduring. The thing that will last far beyond uh, our flesh is our bones. Our bones will remain. And so death is paradoxically something that is an instrument of change, but it also at the same time is something that reveals the most enduring aspect of us. So from our readings, uh, the first reading of Ash Wednesday from Joel, he talks about, you know, rending your hearts and not your garments. So this, this idea that don't, don't rend something superficial, the something you wear on the outside, but, but open up your hearts to strip away the, the outer garment, the, the flesh, and reveal the thing that is most enduring, the thing that is, that's going to last. So the, in this period of Lent, we're being called to see what are the things that endure, what are the things that really matter to us. Carl Jung was asked about how to prepare for death. And he said one way we can think about death is preparing for you know, a long journey, an, an endless, a journey of endless duration to an unknown land. He said one would want to divest themselves of everything that is unnecessary and, and get rid of any unnecessary baggage. And he said, so what... In order to do this, what one might want to do is examine our belongings and selecting the articles that are most essential for our spiritual and physical well-being, leaving behind the rest. But knowing what to leave behind kind of implies that we recognize what's essential. And in order to recognize what's essential, we have to have kind of a, a hierarchy of values. So one way that we come to understand the hierarchy of values is through mortification. Interestingly, 
Mortification comes from two Latin words, mors and facere. Mors meaning death and facere meaning to make. So literally, mortification means to make dead. And what we do in mortification in this season of Lent is that we mortify our attachments, our vices, and our desires. So we are to make dead, so to speak, those things that are vying for our attention, those things that hinder us from recognizing and properly categorizing or prioritizing values is mortification. We use that to make dead or to to reorganize and reevaluate our values. I remember one time Jordan Peterson was talking about how when we watch children's cartoons, sometimes the inanimate objects become animate. And you know, they have faces, things like books or cars, they talk, they look human, they're anthropomorphized. And we sort of just take this for granted that we intuitively accept that these objects are personified and that they they act as living things. They have thoughts, they have feelings, and they act as humans. And what Peterson says is that this is kind of how we unconsciously interact with the world, that we don't interact with the world as a place of objects and dead things or inanimate things, but that actually the the world is populated with seemingly alive objects, or we, we form an attachment to these objects that make them seem as though they're living and animate. And that's part of what mortification is getting at, actually, is that we don't treat our attachments as inanimate. Our favorite things, our favorite books, our favorite meals, our favorite cars, our, our favorite clothing, all these things are alive to us. And that when we have to part with them or when we have to mortify them, it's seen as a death. We think about getting rid of our favorite article of clothing or something like that or being asked to part with our favorite article of clothing. And we think about all the memories that we have in the object. And we think that in some sense, the object will miss us or something like that. I love hoodies, so you know, parting with them is always sweet sorrow. But when I part with a hoodie, I think about all the, the times I've worn it or the, some memories I have with it. But the, but the hoodie doesn't have memories with me. The, the, the hoodie is not actually alive. But my attachment to the hoodie, in some sense, makes it living. And what mortification does is it, it kills that object or kind of in less drastic language what it does is it revaluates or puts it in its proper place in our life in the proper hierarchy and that we view objects as they are in reality which is temporal and finite that they don't have the ultimate significance in our life they're they're inanimate but again our desires our app- our appetites and our attachments bring these things to life and they need to be put to death. They need to be put in proper place. What mortification is trying to get us to see is that holding on to temporal things, holding on to things that will not last, is in very much sense a silly. That they, it will not go on forever. It's like trying to hold on to your favorite meal forever. It doesn't make any sense. It will come to an end. The meal will get bad. Your life will run out. But if we don't have our priorities straight, we think in some unconscious level that life will continue as it is forever, but it's not true. So in the first reading of the day, when the prophet Joel says that, even now says the Lord, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, rend your hearts, not your garments, return to the Lord your God. 
what he's saying is by fasting and by mourning and by mortification, we're supposed to return to God, that we're supposed to make God the highest value again. As Carl Jung says, the, the God archetype is the thing that is at the top, that part of the God archetype is that that archetype is the thing of highest value. So what the season is trying to get us to do is to see that the highest value should actually be God, not the things that we make God and not the finite things that we, ch- that we pl- put in place of God, our attachments that we replace God with, but truly God should be the highest value. That what mortification does is, again, it rends our hearts and not our garments, that it gets to the core of our person, not the superficiality that we wear like clothing over us. That clothing is this this garment of skin that doesn't actually get to the core of what of what needs to be mortified. So the the death experienced in mortification, you know, rends the garments of mortality to reveal the truth of the heart underneath. One of my favorite lines in this reading is, "Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God?" This question of where is their God or where is God is a question that actually strikes to the heart of both believers and unbelievers. That th- this is a question that both will ask, right? You know, those who don't believe or atheists or however you want to describe them, ask, where is God? And even the believer is tempted with the same question. Where is God amidst my life and suffering? And part of Lent, I believe, is this question. Where is God? And Lent allows us to go on that quest and go on that journey. St. Teresa of Avila says that if the soul wishes to speak to God, it doesn't need to go to heaven. And it needs no wings to fly out of the body. But if it wishes to seek God, if the soul is looking for God, the soul can find God within itself. But of course, the question becomes, if God is within us, why do we have such a difficult time finding him? Or why do we have such a hard time recognizing his presence? And of course, St. John of the Cross has an answer. He says that God is within us, but he is hidden. So if we wish to find him, we have to detach ourselves, deprive ourselves, renounce ourselves, to die spiritually to all things, to find him. That God is hidden in a kind of a secret path. And so in order to find that secret path, we kind of have to clear away everything to find where he is hidden. This is what St. John of the Cross will call the, the path of, of nothingness, of complete detachment. And this is a, a death to the old self, which is the indispensable condition for finding God. So what we can say is the search for God within us goes hand in hand with dying to the world and dying to self. At St. John the Cross's answer for why we don't find God is because we live too much in the exterior world, that often we find ourselves with a, a host of inclinations, ideas, strong pas- passions, and they, they, these inclinations and passions take our hearts away, that they, they make us turn towards the creature and, and just pursue them and make us live in a, a superficial world that absorbs us so completely that we forget that there's a more profound life that we're called to. The reality of the interior life is where God dwells and where we can commune with him. And he waits there for us, but we're often taken up with superficial affairs. We live too much, again, in the exterior and not enough in the interior. One of my favorite quotes from Jung is from his book, Ion. The quote goes, 
How has the death of Christ brought us redemption when no one feels redeemed? In what way is Jesus a God-man and what is such a being? What is the Trinity about? The virgin birth, the eating of the body and drinking of the blood and all the rest of it. What connections can there be between the world of such concepts and the everyday life? Whose material reality is the concern of natural science on the widest possible scale? At least 16 hours of the 24 hours we live exclusively in the everyday world. And the remaining eight we spend preferably in an unconscious condition. Where and when does anything take place to remind us even remotely of the phenomenon like angels, miraculous feedings, beatitudes, and the resurrection of the body and the like? Part of the reason why I like this quote, right towards the end there, where he says, where and when does anything take place to even remotely remind us of the phenomenon of God? And I think this goes straight to the heart of what St. John the Cross was talking about, that we live so much in the exterior world that we, we don't think about any of these other realities, that we're so taking, taken up with our, our passions, our attachments, our desires, our daily preoccupations, that we don't look for God, that I think it's important to remember the Thomistic principle, or the scholastic principle at least, that what is not apprehended cannot be willed. So the will follows the intellect. The intellect recognizes something and says that's good, and the will follows it. But if we live exclusively in the world where there is no God, effectively speaking, we live kind of unconsciously with the death of God, we can't will him. And we, we can't see him if we don't make him in, you know, an object of our minds and an object of desire. Part of the interior life that St. John the Cross is talking about is the daily recognition that God exists, that he's there, and that he should be an object of our desire. But if we live exclusively with our preoccupations in the external world, we'll never see that. We'll never recognize him as existing. And like I said, we'll live at least unconsciously like God is dead. Jung actually continues to talk about this idea in a, in a different work called The Symbolic Life. It was a lecture he gave in, in England, I believe. It wasn't called The Symbolic Life, but that's what editors called the talk he gave. Jung says that man needs a symbolic life. We live too much in the banal and ordinary rational life that man needs ritual. And he says on a trip to India one time, he noticed that every Indian household, even the most simple, had a space for God, had a space for them to, as he said, perform the rites, to, perf- to renew their vows to God and to perform their meditations. And he said they have a space, they have a corner in their homes to lead the symbolic life. But he said us Westerners, we don't have any corner like that. He said we have rooms for everything. We have rooms you know, for our telephones that can reach us at any moment. We have you know, maybe a corner where the phone is and we're ready to reach for it any time. He said, but we don't have corners or spaces in our homes for God. So therefore, again, God is out of, you know, out of sight, out of mind. A, a modern phrase for a Thomistic principle. So Jung goes on to say, where have these images gone? He says, where have we got these dogmatic or mysterious images? He says, nowhere. We don't have these images in our homes. Instead, he said, we, we take religious imagery and we put it in art galleries where we kill the gods by the thousands. Now, I, I think about Rome and the Vatican and in, in beautiful churches, or even here in America. You know, A couple months ago, I went to New York City and I, I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And the cathedral was f- packed. 
There were people everywhere. It was much more touristy than I thought. It's a beautiful church in America. But people were viewing the, the sacred images and objects as if, again, they, they had no relation to them. As if they were, they were viewing, you know, a street sign or maybe even less. It, it, it was just a wash over them because these images have been killed spiritually, that they, they're now benign. They belong to the realm of the ordinary as opposed to the realm of the religious and the mysterious. And he says that we have robbed these churches and we put them in art galleries. I'm not bashing art galleries and I don't think Jung is either. But he's saying what we do is we take the mysterious and we take the religious and we try to, like in a sense, domesticate it, to make it part of the ordinary, part of, you know, well, we go to church like we go to an art museum that we just observe. But these images have nothing to do with me in my life and they have no impact on me and how I'm supposed to be living in the world. So both St. John of the Cross and Carl Jung answer the question, where is God, by saying, He's inside you. He's within you. That we live too much in the external world, in ordinary existence. That's, that's why we don't find him. But in fact, God is dwelling within, if you have the eyes to see. I think most people, Catholic or non-Catholic, are familiar with the Lenten tradition to give something up during Lent. And many times, you know, the classic example is giving up chocolate or, or you know, when I was a kid, giving up my favorite channel for cartoons. And sometimes I think we, we give up these things and for the sake of, of kind of feeling the hurt, right? Lent is 40 days, just like Christ spent 40 days in the desert. So we're supposed to unite our sufferings with the suffering Christ in the desert. That's true. And I think, you know, I think there is a place to give up legitimate pleasures, you know, just because, you know, like, you know, chocolate might not keep you from God, but it's, you know, it's a nice little thing to have and you can still give those things up. However, I think, given what, what we've said today, part of the point of giving something up is mortification. It's to make dead the noise and distractions that keep us from this question that we just answered. Where is God? That Lent is, is a time for us to find God, to answer the question, where is God? And the means of doing that is our Lenten practices, is giving something up to make dead, to live less in the exterior and to live more in the interior. That Lent gives us the time to burn or kill off our dead habits, to burn the dead wood, as Jordan Peterson would say. It gives us a time to examine our actions and our conscience sincerely and to find out where, what is the God that we worship, what is the, the highest value, and to properly orient our values or to recategorize or reprioritize what actually is essential and what actually matters. St. John the Cross will talk about attachments, desires, and our appetites as you know, almost like needy or spoiled children. That They kind of pull at us and they, they demand our attention and they pull us in different directions. And like I said, they, they make us live in the exterior and not in the interior. So part of Lent is, again, the mortification of killing off the things that vie for our attention and pull at us. So when we give things up in Lent, it's not for the sake of giving things up, for the sake of pain or some sort of Nietzschean interpretation that Christians hate this life. This life is good and we should love this life, but it's not the end all be all, that we are made for union with God and for eternity. And part of Lent is to remind us of our nothingness, 
remind us of the reality of death. And with that reminder, to act in accordance with that reality, to, again, reprioritize our values. So hopefully this Lent will give up something that actually matters. I know that this has been an examination of my own conscience about what I should, what, what do I really need to give up, things that are actually hindering me from entering into a deeper relationship with God and not just superficial things. So I hope it's been helpful to you. Again, let me know what you think about today's topic in the comments. And if you have any questions, you can email me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.